Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Seaweed Brain. This episode is not like the other girls. We're not just we're not just going through the plot. We're not just talking about characters because this time is our Amazons special. Yes. Get hype. Get hype. We're going to be talking about the Amazons in the books. We're going to be talking about the Amazons in history, in mythology, in pop culture. All coming up. Stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, thank you, Carter, for that lovely intro. You are officially intro queen. That's the title I'm giving you. Um, and we are super excited. We have a brand new special guest, somebody who has never before been on Seaweed Brain Podcast, but you may recognize her voice. Say hello to Quinn from the retired podcast Floor 600. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I haven't been podcasting yes. in a while. <laughs> hey, yeah. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Quinn, where you grew up, what you do, what your zodiac sign is? <laughs> okay. Well, I was, uh, I'm a cancer, um, year of the rat. Uh, <laughs> um, my friend and I, Natalie, we created a podcast about, um, about two years ago called Floor 600, and we went chapter by chapter or no, not chapter by chapter, every two to three chapters, every episode through the Percy Jackson series. And it was a ride. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. Yes. And unfortunately, we get, or we aren't continuing it on, but we just love it. So we're sticking around in the universe. So yes. Showing up on these Percy Jackson podcasts. Yes, show up more. <laughs> so you were once a history major and now you are a history lady. You work in a museum, right? Um, would you like to tell us more about yes, what you do? History lady. I'm going to change like my is Instagram bio. <laughs> yeah. So I was a history major. I was a very confused history major. It took me about a year and a half to become a history major. Uh, and now I work at the local Porter County Museum in small town uh, Valparaiso, Indiana. And we tell the history of Porter County. And it's really interesting because I've lived here my entire life and I learn something new every single day and most of the time it's something to make you just go ah why world <laughs> um, every once in a while it's just like oh that was cute <laughs> yeah that is kind of like the journey with history why world and well I guess that was cute back then <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of this episode is gonna be why world and like some of it will be like a hell yeah world yeah. Yeah. So, Quinn, <laughs> you shared us so many valuable links and useful information about real life Amazons, which we will dive into after we start talking about the Amazons in the actual Son of Neptune. 
So we actually have not talked about Rick's version of the Amazons at all yet. We kind of skipped over that part as we were talking about the plot. So that's where we begin. If you recall, Hazel, Frank, and Percy encounter the Amazons about midway through the book during their quest. And Rick's modernization of the Amazons in this book is that they are in charge of like Amazon, the company, which maybe was like funnier um, back in the day in like 2011 when Amazon was not in charge of like the entire world and yes. destroying the earth. It was not always a shipping conglomerate that was um, powering the wealthiest person in the world and also like famous for invading neighborhoods and um, like not paying people. Yes. Yes. It Mm -hmm. used to be basically just the people who drove um, normal booksellers out of business. And back then we were all vaguely less upset with it. Yes, vaguely (laughs) less upset and like... On one hand, I feel like the modernization, like, it's not funny anymore at this period in time when you think about, like, Amazon as a company and how it's destroying the world. But on the other hand, like, what a beautiful fantasy to imagine that all this time, it hasn't been Jeff Bezos in charge of Amazon, but rather a conglomerate of super powerful, strong, very tall women in cargo pants who are running a sort of, like, feminist Yes, in an idealized world. But (laughs) when they were... I read that chapter like twice, two weeks apart. And both times I read that paragraph that where that one Amazon just goes on basically her spiel for how great working at Amazon is. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and it gave me chills both times. Yeah. I was like, ooh, <laughs> I know people. Like, <laughs> Carter, do you want to give a quick summary on the plot of these Amazon yeah. chapters? So they're going to visit because um, Raina told them to. She suggested that they might be able to get some guidance there because her sister is in charge of the Amazons. So they go up there, they meet her sister, but even though, um, you know, her sister, who is queen of the Amazons, does believe it. She sees the ring from Reyna, she trusts them. She also is under sort of internal political pressure because she has a challenger coming up through the ranks. Otrera, the old and I believe first queen of the Amazons, is trying to take the throne from her. So she basically has to throw them all in prison and not go with her first instinct, which is to believe them, help them, go to the aid of Rome, etc. Shenanigans Mm -hmm. ensue. Um, (laughs) Basically, um, they, like, Hilla helps mostly Hazel, but through her, the whole group, to Mm -hmm. break out of Amazon prison, shame her ideological enemies, and escape on Arian, the super horse, whom Hazel meets for the first time and has a strong affinity for ultimate horse girl horse yeah love. that about covers it <laughs> oh but as they're leaving of course hilla has to deal with this impending fight to the death um against otrera the original queen of the amazons who also um for those of you who remember the rest of the plot of this book can't die because death is in chains oh wait should we talk about the end of the book and what the result is because you yes guys covered it all that's a good point so <laughs> circling back to the end, they like show up halfway through the battle um, in New Rome against the giants and their evil army. It's a little unsure when they first arrive who, who is victorious, whose side they're coming to fight on. But it turns out that Hilla won. Hilla won, in fact, three times. They have a nice reunion. Hilla and Reyna. I believe this is the first time they said that they've like met in person since they parted ways to go to the Romans and Amazons respectively. But yeah, they, they're very important to the to the victory that yes. is secured. Wait, should I do a quick, like, reading of this encounter on page 494? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Okay, so this is page 494, towards the end of the book. There was a lot of flirting and arm wrestling, which seemed to be the same thing for the Amazons. At one point, Percy was cornered by Kinsey, the Amazon who disarmed him in Seattle. He had to explain that he already had a girlfriend. Fortunately, Kinsey took it well. She told him what had happened after they left Seattle, how Hilla had defeated her challenger, Otrera, in two consecutive duels to the death, so that the Amazons were now calling their queen Hilla twice kill. 
Otrera stayed dead the second time, Kinsey said, batting her eyes. We have you to thank for that. If you ever need a new girlfriend, well, I think you'd look great in an iron collar and an orange jumpsuit. Percy couldn't tell if she was kidding or not. He politely thanked her and changed <laughs> seats. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> That is one of the great lines in um, in literature. Yes. Um. <laughs> in all of the Western English-speaking canon, one of the greatest lines and sections of all time. Um, we sort of, like, wanted to touch on this earlier. We were talking about the plot of the book, but, you know, it, it wasn't the time, but now is the time. This Not is with the, the episode youths. for it. Yes. This, this scene is important. This scene is important yes. because, realistically, Mr. Percy is getting propositioned now as the young man he is yeah. by other beautiful young men and women he's encountering on these quests it's it's time for people to be asking percy out straight up <laughs> on dates like it it's yes. happening. well yep. i think we actually have seen a lot considering he's only he's been under 16 based the entire time before this so it's only been yes. age appropriate flirting so like Calypso was allowed to go like, hey girl, mm-hmm. and <laughs> yep, something like that. And who else? Oh, Rachel, Rachel. and that's mm. about it. Yeah, but no, yes. he, he's he's grown up now. It's it's we're past he's the awkward grown. flirting. Yeah, it's grown time. Percy <laughs> drinks coffee now in cafes. It's time for people to just act grown and just say, "You are good looking, sir." Oh yep. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Let's shall we date? Yes, excellent. No beating around the bush. Yeah, yet. he's also seen some things. He has like a shock of gray hair. Oh, you know. Oh my yeah. god, not the shock of gray hair. I almost <laughs> forgot. <laughs> okay, yes, but that—that's a good segue to lead us into talk about like Rick's version of the Amazons and um, how they like interact with men, like what their perspective is on men. Um, so this is another quick quote mm-hmm. on page. 316 from Hazel's POV when they first meet the Amazons. The only humans Hazel could see were some black-suited security women patrolling the catwalks and some men in orange jumpsuits like prison uniforms, driving forklifts through the aisles, delivering more pallets of boxes. The men wore iron collars around their necks. You keep slaves? Hazel knew it might be dangerous to speak, but she was so outraged she couldn't stop herself. The men, Kinsey snorted, they're not slaves. They just know their place. Now move. You might be reminded of Princess Mononoke. That was my first association when I read this for the first time. The the Ironworks Village, where the men, you know, they play a secondary role in the society. They are not the breadwinners, nor the suppliers of physical labor. I sort of have to just disagree, because it seems a little more intense. They have collars on. (laughs) It seems a bit more Handmaid's Tale on Mm. their end. But then there's the question of consent, because it seems like they have a lot more... Control. Consent in yes. the matter. <laughs> yeah, like it does. It fully does seem, seem like the men chose this. And like, yeah, yes, there's I a agree. whole other society for them to live in. Yeah. Like they could run away to. Like this is all taking place in Seattle. Just to, to remind us, this is at the Amazon headquarters of like the corporation. So like, <laughs> if they felt bad, there's like Tacoma. You know, like they could <laughs> presumably <laughs> run away to live in patriarchal America um, right. at any point. <laughs> Yes. So like naturally thinking about um, men and their relationship with the Amazons and the Amazons identity as like a band of warrior women naturally is going to make us compare them with the hunters at this stage in the series. Um, I think the Amazons have just like way more presence in pop culture in general, but the hunters are a much larger Mm -hmm. force in these books, um, at least at first at this point. Um, In my opinion, the hunters just hit a little different. They're ethereal. They literally Mm -hmm. glow silver. They have lunar wolves um, versus the Amazons in this book are 
like basically dirty capitalists that drive forklifts and wear cargo pants, which is, you know, fine. It's just a, a different aesthetic. It's totally fine. Um, I know in Trials of Apollo, there are like updates to the romantic rules of the hunters, but we're not going to get into that because we technically aren't there. Um, but the hunters like basically swear off men and romantic relationships entirely versus the Amazons are still allowed to and like encourage having like, yes. relations with men. There are also other like... We should also note that related to the hunters, Amazon's comparison, like the Amazons are also not immortal. Like they, um, this is like one of the lines is something along, I'm going to paraphrase this. Hilla, I believe says, you know, the hunters live forever until they're slain in battle. We prefer to live life to the fullest. Um, So like they live normal mortal lives that involve men, risk, diseases of old age, etc. Okay, I'm not going to lie. The first time I read this, my reaction to all these lines about the men was like, that it felt... A little bit like Rick screaming, not gay, not gay. (laughs) Cargo pants, but not gay. Cargo pants, but not gay, in case you were wondering, in case you were confused. Now that I'm older, I read this and I'm like, they dress like bisexuals. That's like what this energy is. Like, like, that's what the clothing says to me. No, but right. also just like more broadly i think that it's like it's, it's sort of mirroring like different dialogues and like not just dialogues but different feminist communes that emerged out of the 70s where like you know some like a lot of them were just like lesbian affairs where it was like just women period I, there, there's like a value i think in the juxtaposition that particularly gets drawn out as we move further through the heroes of olympus i was about to say the wrong name for the subseries for the <laughs> heroes okay. of olympus series where what like in the fifth it? books we see the amazons and the um hunters like juxtaposed mm. Yeah. a lot like very very importantly for for plot reasons and i don't know again as i've gotten older i feel like i have more of an appreciation for the fact that like there are both and that there's a value to having both and that we have this whole like feminism is a multiplicity of choices like you can you you can still like men yes un- unfortunately <laughs> you can um i i agree i think it's beautiful that like in a coming of age like fantasy book like this where there are all of these like choices like things you can identify with was while you're like developing your personality like, you could choose your cabin your godly parent um you could choose not to be a part like a camper and identify yourself with the hunters and and now you can also choose to identify yourself with the amazon yeah yes. there's a lot of positives when it comes to the hunters but the negative is you're not gonna grow up you're stuck being 13 mm-hmm. personally yes. 13 mm-hmm. wasn't a good year no. and, <laughs> and i wouldn't want to be 13 forever even if i did have a pet wolf but <laughs> oh, trade-offs so yeah the idea of and like all right i missed my chance of being a hunter but then this opportunity of being uh, a different kind of strong female warrior comes up and you get the opportunity to be an amazon i think that's just like a really cool yeah i like that he gives you all these choices like Rick's just great at that. I feel like just sort of giving, putting the pieces out there type thing and then sort of giving them opportunity to grow. Yes. Like they might not be perfect when they initially get there, when they're initially out there, but eventually (laughs) they'll be good. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Just really quickly, one of the other things that the Amazons give us that a lot of the other um, aspects of basically all of the Percy Jackson universe books 
don't give us is like a really interesting political dynamic, which I'm a sucker for. I deeply love it, <laughs> especially when you compare it to like the god awful writing of like the Roman Senate in New Rome, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. it doesn't like make sense and the stakes are bad. And mm-hmm. Octavian is just such awful. a clown that like nothing feels momentous or interesting or like full of gravity with stakes for like the future of the civilization. This is like the the, the detailed politics writing around that like conflict between Hella and Otrera to me is like really interesting because they both like seem to like represent fairly legitimate positions on the Amazons, especially given that they, unlike these other groups of people we've seen, like don't have any really strong connections to the gods. And it makes that very clear and explicit for us. It also like validates the idea that they're like a full civilization. When we see this juxtaposed against what we see in Rome, it like validates the idea for us that the Amazons, they're not just a fun crew of people. Like, you know, that's another way in which they're different from the hunters. They're a society. There's something that we should think of on the level of New Rome, not on the level of, I don't know, like a crew of fun friends or something. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yes. I don't know. I, I was reminded vaguely of the, um, of Black Panther, like uh, in, in the, like the literal political system is the same where you have like a monarch that was challenged through ritual combat and the, <laughs> Like political dynamics are also sort of similar where you have like different views where like one person is like more revolutionary, but also kind of an extremist and that's the poison pill that gets put into their storyline. But in such a way that it still feels interesting enough that there are like, you know, real ideological stakes that we can grab onto. And also just like an epic sense of consequences that go beyond the scope of the heroes, the gadget or like whatever, you know, like it doesn't feel like there's a single object of a quest that'll save the world as much as like, you know, like you are fighting over like what this whole group of people wants to do. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. Also, just Hilla's cool. Hilla's fucking cool Mm -hmm. as hell. Yes. Hilla and Reyna. Reyna giving you a sexual lesbian and Hilla serving you bisexual queen of literally an entire civilization energy. It's very true. (laughs) It is true. I totally agree. And like Reyna, like I feel like we've had conversations before about like Reyna (laughs) like developing into this awesome like cool older queer mentor. Her relationship with Nico is so great and delicious and fulfilling in the last book. But Hilla is giving us to us like more on mm-hmm. this whole other level yes. and earlier because yes. she's like a full she's adult older. Yes, she's who's a in charge of things. Adult. Mm-hmm. Whole adult. She has bills to pay. She mm-hmm. has a civilization to be in charge of. Literally that. So like <laughs> we we see her like both being like really grown and like being on just like a totally different plane from the rest of them, hearing all of their problems and just being like, okay, yeah, you're valid. But also like I have experiences with which to weigh in on this. But then also, like, we get to simultaneously see her, like, deal with shit. Like, she is genuinely struggling to kill this civilization-level threat that she's facing uh, twice <laughs> in, in combat, who um, twice, cannot though. die. So, I don't know. I just find it very satisfying. Mm-hmm, in a way that, as much as I love Zoe, it just, like, it hits different. You know, like, Zoe, oh, even though she's 2,000 years old, you know, like, they, they portrayed her more as, like, one of the, one of the kids, yes, one of the girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hela, even though she's technically younger, she's she's grown. She is offering advice serenely from her position of of advancement and maturity. And I love that for us, given that everyone else who is in that similar position mm-hmm. is not doing their job. Yes. It's not uh-huh. showing up for work. Uh-huh. At Chiron. Um, hello. Chiron, the wolf. <laughs> Literally, honestly, Jason not showing up to work because he got kidnapped for six months, leaving Reyna all alone. SMH. Cool. So all of that being said, I think it might be time to dive into the Amazons as they were in Greek mythology. Oh, so boy. Uh, it's time for some Very more. Very good. <laughs> summarization of some articles and youtube videos 
So I'll just oh, give boy. a big old preface cool. and then uh, Quinn, Carter, feel free to jump in wherever. Quinn, I know you've got a lot of knowledge here. So here's the thing. The Amazons, as much as they have come to represent like female empowerment, <laughs> like we'll talk about in the pop culture segment of this episode, um, the Amazons in mythology back back in the day were literally the arc enemies of the Greeks, of the citizens Isn't it of arched? Athens. Oh, wait, wait, what did I say? Arc, arc? Yeah. arc enemies? Oh, arch? I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I <laughs> They were the greatest enemies of <laughs> the citizens of Athens. Yes. Um, they literally existed in myth, like, to be murdered. Yes. So, obviously, <laughs> not good stuff. Um, Antigone Rising is a book by Dr. Helen Morales, which yes. we have referenced before on the show. Her book starts off with a chapter called Killing Amazons, where she writes about how this, like, function of murdering women, like, powerful women that stand on the edges of traditional society, perpetuates, it, perpetuates itself today, like, in violence towards women and, like, the literal killing of women in Western society. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote from this chapter. It says, misogyny is the law enforcement branch of the patriarchal order, which has the overall function of policing and enforcing its governing ideology. One of the main ways in which misogyny does this is by differentiating between, quote, good women and, quote, bad women and punishing the bad women. So the Amazons were said bad women. Um, They existed in myth um, Mm -hmm. as people who were foreign. They were not Greek, very specifically. They were outside of Greek culture. Um, They had sex with whomever they pleased. They didn't get married. They rode on horseback. And they didn't exist within the traditional polis of society that Athens had built itself Mm -hmm. on, like on this, like, oppression of women keeping them in their sphere the amazons were first mentioned in the iliad by homer and because they were such fierce female warriors they quickly became worthy opponents for homer's heroes so his heroes could go out and kill women without looking evil or being immoral because these women were women they were monsters because it wouldn't be honorable to kill someone who was less than they have to be an equal or better I guess. Right. In yeah. order to fight them. Um, Better I think fighter. Mm-hmm. that would be a good segue into the specific myths where the Amazons are mentioned. Um, would you like to cover Heracles, Quinn? Yeah. So Heracles uh, or Hercules, whoever <laughs> you want to call him, Herc. Right. Basically, there's a myth where he was given the task to find the uh, girdle, girdle of Hippolyta. And either the myth is that he seduced Juiced to Palata and she was sort of like, hey, Herc, you're sexy. Come on in. Welcome to my house, my humble abode with all my Amazon friends. And he's just like, hey, Hippolyta. And they bone and she's just like, I love you so much. Uh, <laughs> can you take my girdle? And he's just like, yeah, that's exactly what I came from. And he runs and he like runs away. But and then there's a different myth that says he's just like, hey, Hippolyta. She's like. Ew, her. He's just like, hey, Apolita. And they bone. And uh, he skedaddles with the girdle. And she's mad and dead. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't really look into the, a lot of that myth other than, well, Herc did what Herc does. Mm, and <laughs> violent Yeah, super yeah. fun. Mm-hmm. And as Dr. Morales points out in her book, the 12 labors that Hercules was like given uh, were given to him as punishment for killing his wife, Megara, and their children. So he was given the task, depending on what myth version of the myth you read, to kill Hippolyta to make up for the fact that he had killed his wife and children. Yes. You might recognize this like broader plot structure from uh the james bond movies where this happens in literally <laughs> everyone there is like a 
evil woman who uses her sexuality, but also, like, there is an evil man who exploits their sexuality and then also kills them at the end for having been evil and dared to, you know live sexually and oppose mm-hmm. his life goals yes yes he loves them because they're powerful and sexual and and he kills, kills them, them because yes. they're powerful and sexual mm-hmm. exactly <laughs> yeah and you know we'll have a content warning for this episode like we said but it's hard to talk about some of these myths like as they were in mythology because they are so connected with violence against women sexual violence against women um which is hard to talk about so there's another myth that says achilles battled an unnamed amazon sometimes she's named as like penthesilia i'm not saying that right um where he kills her and then falls in love with her as her helmet is torn off and revealed that she's a woman she's kind of like that scene in lord of the rings um (laughs) (laughs) and and there's even another Greek hero famous for killing Amazons, whose name is like something like Bellerophon, um, who killed Amazons by flying over them on his Pegasus and literally dropping giant boulders on them until they were crushed to death. Shout out to Otrera in this book. That is how she met her demise <laughs> in myth. So yes, just lots of examples of Amazons being murdered um, because, of course, they were the enemy. Um, these all like these stories come from poets like Homer, quote unquote, like historians who wrote them down. And also, there's lots and lots of depictions of Amazons on vases, like the pottery of the time. That's where we get a lot of our information about how the Greeks culturally viewed the Amazons during this time. And something like the numbers are different on different articles, but there's like a hundreds or like a thousands of vases that remain intact that depict mm-hmm. the Amazons and um, all. All of them show the Amazons running into battle and there's only like maybe five or something single digit number of vases intact that depict the Amazons begging for mercy. So basically they have a warrior spirit. They never give up. They never beg for mercy, which obviously turned them into the like girl boss icons that they are today. (laughs) Quinn, anything else you want to talk about with the myth before we go on and talk about like history of the Amazons in real life? Not really Greek mythology, but other mythology in general. So, uh, because of where we're, we'll get into like real life Amazons, but where, because of where they roamed, the Amazon myth sort of is everywhere. So there's Persian myths, Egyptian myths, Central Asian myths, like there's myths of a- the Amazons going to the Great Wall of China. But what's different from these myths compared to the Greek myths is that often these warriors were sort of shown as a equal match to the male. And not only that, a lot of times they would actually team up. So there's like a, a awesome one where an equal match male army and an Amazon army go out to the field and do battle for a day. And then at the end of the day, they're like, woof, I'm tired. You tired? Me too. And they're like, all right, let's take a break. And during the break, they sort of start chatting and they're like, hey, I like you. And they're like, yeah, me too. And then they're like, team up? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and then they go and like kill all their enemies yes, together. Always team up to vanquish your enemies. Teamwork makes the dream work. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just such a great difference in myths compared to like the real real sexism in the greek myths of just like let's kill all of the amazons they can't win a battle Mm -hmm. they can't actually win sometimes they have a happy ending (laughs) yeah they actually do and so something that is like endlessly fascinating to me as somebody who does not study the classics or history (laughs) or ancient civilizations um in college is this difference between mythology and history like where do myths come from they're stories that are given the label mythology based on how important they are to a society and its origins but because the amazons appear in so many different myths and different cultures Mm -hmm. there is this question historians have been asking for hundreds of years which is 
were the Amazons real? And if so, like, who are they based on? Yeah. Um, was there an ancient matriarchal society of supremely tall, powerful women that lived on the outskirts of, like, quote-unquote <laughs> society in the steppes um, and roamed Europe and Central Asia? Um, and this is something that's really important because there's a lot of debate on whether or not matriarchal societies actually existed pre, like, the patriarchal civilizations like Greece and Rome that we know of because historians for a long time have been saying matriarchies are savage yes. and matriarchies only existed before we moved to cities this is from the Smithsonian article. Yes, it is. We'll link in the show notes that this article that specifically names this one historian that kind of like popularized this theory about matriarchies being savage, yes. which basically leads us to find this proving of the Amazons in real life to be very important, <laughs> yes. very important to us non-men people that need to prove that yeah, matriarchies and if you are want powerful. Proof, what's great is if it's out there, the proof is out there. Yeah. All right. So archaeologists. <laughs> They are flawed human beings. Mm. And for <laughs> years, they go and they do a dig and they're like, a body. Cool. What's in the grave? And a lot of times, because they're going in with their own culture in mind, they sort of perceive what they see as sexual indicators in the objects around the body mm. instead of, I don't know, doing their job. <laughs> And looking at the bones and like doing some science. That's why we need women in STEM. Uh, so <laughs> these bones were, would be found and they would have great things with them. And there would be like a mirror and stuff like that. And they'd be like, all right, mirror and jewelry, you're a woman. Bow and injuries on your bones, you're a man. Well, now we have DNA. DNA is a magical thing. Uh, Carter. Now, take these bones. <laughs> Carter stuff. <laughs> Don't expose me like that on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but DNA is great, and they prove that all of these bones w that were previously identified as male are actually female. So it's like dozens of these sites are being found, like one a year, two a year, like all the freaking time. And yet there are still people out there that said they don't exist. To them I say, read the articles. Yeah. Which we will link in our yes. show notes. Sure will. <laughs> yeah, so there's basically all of these real life Scythian graves, right? That's how you say that. Yes. Scythian graves of these women warriors who were buried with daggers and, and knives and bows and arrows. Yeah, so the Scythians would have been both a female and male society, but the reason that they would have been perceived as a female only to the Greeks is because both the male and female people wore pants. They wore the same outfits. Mm -hmm. And that confused. The Greeks. <laughs> Despite um, <laughs> the Greeks all wearing dresses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then also because the women and men were also, they were trained to ride and hunt and all of that jazz uh, from, like, infancy. So a lot of these bones that they're finding are, like, truly bow-legged. And, and it's to sort of just further evidence that there were these female horsewomen with bows and arrows and spears and axes and all this stuff and just raiding the Greek countryside is it's just amazing. Yes, no, it's, it's truly <laughs> inspiring. And so even though these Scythian nomadic warriors um, that roamed the steppes, they were not an only female uh, or even like matriarchal society, some historians or, you know, people believe they were the Amazons, the Scythian warriors were the Amazons, and some believe that they are the descendants 
of the Amazons, like the Amazons mated with another male society and then became these nomadic Scythian warriors, which yes. is really cool because we don't know. We just, we have archaeological proof of the Scythians, but we don't yeah. know what the truth is. Um, and there's also, I believe this was in the Smithsonian article you guys could read, but uh, when they studied the bones, they found out that these women were on average yes. much taller. They were like five, six. Yes. On average. <laughs> much taller than the normal women at that That's time. That's taller than the average woman today in the United States, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> which is so cool. So cool. <laughs> there's just like a trend of giants in Greek mythology. Not just like giants as in like, you know, the giants that Percy is fighting. Which I cannot name. <laughs> but like the Lacedragonian giants. Yes, the northern cannibals. Yeah, but then I think there's like a good... I shouldn't have brought this up. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, Carter would know more about this than me, but like in Hawaii, there's uh, a myth, like story of uh, the, the first people yeah, to be in Hawaii the before the Polynesians, the Tahitians sailed there were the Menahune, which are like smaller than the average people. Ooh. Yeah, basically like people make arguments about like different migration flows, right? Where like people have very different diets and as a result of that, like the heights just vary a lot, um, which is like what people theorize about Menahune and like I guess also what they theorize about these people who presumably would be eating a lot more as like nomadic hunting people there are a number of ways in which they would differ from the greeks not just the fact that they like would lack you know a written language that might be used to defend them and paint them as a protagonist in the history that would ensue rather than the basically like marginalized villains on the edge of society and like most major civilizations sort of around the steps on all sides but like also the fact that they would be doing this probably would indicate that their diet would be much more like heavily composed of like meat uh, and like the results of hunting large animals, which would make them probably on average much taller than the Greeks who were like, you know, chilling. They were sitting in their city states, eating olives <laughs> or some like shit. I don't know. I, I feel like a good comparison <laughs> of the Scythian would be like the Dothraki or whatever, you know? Wait, who are they? I believe that's a Game of Thrones Nomadic reference. horse people <laughs> oh. that eat horse and they're tall. Game and- of Thrones reference yes. yes Game of Thrones. Jason yeah, was the king of the Dothraki <gasps> oh yes, yes. <laughs> no we're bad at we're bad at Game of Thrones but we do love Jason Momoa from his seminal classic C of the Apple TV <laughs> follow-up to Game of Thrones starring him and uh Joshua Henry Anyway, um, <laughs> I guess one more thing we can cover in this history portion is uh, the name Amazons and where that name came from. Um, some historian once said Amazon may have been a Greek word for like one boob, <laughs> one breast. So historians were like, yes, Amazons cut off one of their breasts in no, order to be no. better at archery. Um, that is not real. Literally not no. necessary whatsoever. Shout out to the great female archers, um, Katniss Everdeen, the hunters, um, that is not needed. But linguists today think maybe the name Amazon actually wasn't a Greek word at all. Maybe like Iranian. That idea is like an ancient idea that they would have cut one of their boobs off. But even I think it's like Herodotus, who's like the first historian. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. He's the one historian. who created the histor. He even says like, no, they wouldn't have cut off their boobs. That's just impractical. Doesn't happen. Yeah, and that's pretty much that on that. Like, never even on any of the pottery or vases of Amazon uh, artwork were they ever depicted as having one boob. I've seen more convincing arguments for tattoos. Yes, that is another cool component of the Amazons. I encourage you guys to research that. A lot of people think that the Amazons were also, like, fully tatted. And I think that sort of leads into your pants question. <gasps> yes, okay. Last point on <laughs> oh, the yes, Amazons. The yes, in real life. Um, historians have asked the question, did the Amazons invent pants because horseback riding, etc.? I encourage you, nay, I urge you 
to research whether the Amazons invented <laughs> pants. There's even a school of thought that Medea herself invented pants, the sorceress. Um, so very interesting also to remember this whole time. The Greeks themselves were not wearing pants. <laughs> and that's all I have to say on that. I think it's really interesting and worth your they time. They also base those theories off of the paintings on pottery. I think it's just so cool that they're like basing all these ideas off of just like what we do have left, which is just like literal shards of clay. (laughs) Yes, which like, okay, on a like grander, like philosophical note, like that is why we love art and we are so passionate about art and culture because hundreds of years from now, if we don't destroy the planet in the meantime, historians are going to look back on now and they're going to be like, watching Glee and like finding <laughs> CDs Not of Glee, Glee. and WandaVision. No, fuck? it's our own fault and they're gonna know the true people that we were. so rude. <laughs> They literally will not be doing Glee. They will be using Instagram as their primary mode of research. Oh, no, you're right. First you're right. of all. Social media. I always worry. I always worry that they will have no access to any of our technology. So they'll just be like, why did they all have this obsession with this plastic box? Like, <laughs> yes. Okay, this is such a tangent. But, like, I don't know if you guys remember Xenon, Z to the future. But the concept of, like, aliens in that movie. I think about this all the time. Like, the idea that they are aliens are creatures that we cannot even like touch or communicate with they are simply beings of like light and mist and when they come find us they will just encapsulate us in their mist and we will like understand it's true i just did fucking, i think about like, it all the time do, do you all watch the, the like one of the neil degrasse tyson documentaries is about like intelligent life on other planets and basically one of the things that he casually mentioned was that there are that there are people scientists think that there are three phases of like civilizational development on like the planetary scale so like a really advanced civilization is a phase three civilization and that humanity on earth is a phase zero civilization because we've met none of these marks basically they were saying like if there is other intelligent life out there that ever reaches us it's going to be just way better than us i literally identify as phase zero intelligence i like that you described it as neil degrasse tyson casually threw that out there like earth phase zero anyway like it wasn't like even the main point of the episode of Mm -hmm. the show you know what i mean like it was just a thing that they was it cosmos the remake of carl sagan cosmos i think maybe but I don't, they all blend together for me. This is, we're so off track. <laughs> no, this episode <laughs> is officially very nerdy, very quirky, because we mentioned Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh um, we think about Wake space Tumblr here. back up. We literally think about space on this podcast. <laughs> like, the white men are going to come flocking to Whoa. us now that we have big thoughts. <laughs> okay, so I think it's time for us to dive into the last part of this episode, which is Amazons in pop culture. Ooh-hoo. And we had this idea to do this episode weeks ago when yep. Wonder Woman 2 yes. came out and it's really not relevant anymore. <laughs> We're still going to talk about it because we I barely true, remember true it. Our obsession with pop culture is daring to talk about the movies that people stopped talking about on Twitter multiple months ago. <laughs> but we haven't. Nope. Even though you haven't seen that one video of Gal Gadot screaming, Give me the stone on your mm-hmm. timeline, we still remember it. At Pedro Pascal. <laughs> on top of the Jeep, bro. Oh. What a moment. (laughs) Yes. No, that was a moment. So basically, even though Amazons were the enemies, these foreign enemies in Greek mythology, they have come to represent female empowerment in American pop culture. I will link this other article in our show notes. It's actually like a bustle article, which is weird. I don't know. Um, But it's useful for getting an easy timeline of how the Amazons have existed in American pop culture. They have been everything from 
meaning just like a woman who likes to ride horses, equestrian ladies, to like at one point being an Amazon was like a woman who worked at the circus, um, to meeting literally like women who hopped on horseback to fight in the American Civil War. Um, and then they became a symbol for women's suffrage, like Amazon suffragettes were like kind of um, like more militant suffragettes. Um, and they ended up being strongly connected with like goddess feminism in the second wave in the 1970s. And obviously, famously, Gloria Steinem put uh, Wonder Woman on the cover of Ms. Magazine in, I believe, 1972. Which, for, for those of us if you watched who watched Mrs. Mrs. America, America yep. <laughs> you might know that that <laughs> yes! was kind of... That she also like didn't love that choice. Like she was of mixed emotions of that. She really it wanted to endorse Shirley Chisholm in the magazine, Shirley but they didn't Chisholm. want her to do it. According to this retelling of history, at least. According to this retelling, Gloria Steinem, it does generally seem like would have, based on our popular understanding of her as a historical figure, probably would have preferred Shirley Chisholm to Wonder Woman, <laughs> the comic figure. But she did Brennan. Wait, Knight. who? Shirley Chisholm. Who is that? She was the first uh, black female black woman candidate for president. Presidential candidate. Yeah. Oh. 1972. Oh my also gosh. the first woman of color elected, no, second woman of color elected to the U.S. Congress. Because, because Patsy um, Ming. It was after what? Patsy Ming. Yep. Carter's local. Why have I never heard of her? Well, it's not your fault. It's not like history Truly. is teaching you this. Yeah. Truly it does. The reason I know about Shirley Chisholm is because of Carter's Shirley Chisholm obsession <laughs> <laughs> in middle school, high school. I used to be a hardcore Shirley Chisholm, Patsy Ming stan, and now I'm a... I'm a bit poor, Shirley. She's in Patsy Mink's sad, I would say. That. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's a good tour through history. Do we dive into Wonder Woman? Yeah, Queen, yeah, take okay. it away. <laughs> so I just want to talk about a little bit about the origins of Wonder Woman. Please so uh, us. we said the character was created in, what'd you say, 1941. Yeah. For a history major and a person who works in a museum and like who's supposed to like know their stuff. Terrible with dates. Dates? Not my friend. Don't get it. You literally work in a museum just like Wonder Woman. Oh my god. (laughs) You're like the same person. Kristen Gray. Oh my goodness. It's true. I didn't model my whole career after her. Uh, No, who would do that? Who would do such a thing? (laughs) So it was created by a man named William Moulton Marston. That is right. Wonder Woman was created by a man. (laughs) Marston created Wonder Woman by combining a lot of the characteristics of his wives as well as the themes of the early feminist movement and of the early 20th century. And yes, I did say wives. He was a polygamist. He was first married to his like Hollywood <laughs> or high school sweetheart, uh, Elizabeth Holloway. And she basically did everything for Marston. She's the reason we know who he is. She worked his way through college type thing. She worked and paid his way. Um, (laughs) And then she also, at the same time, sat in on all of his law classes, but could not graduate with him, even though she had better grades than him. Because at the time, Harvard did not let women graduate. It's true. So hurrah. Harvard is technically not offered degrees to women until the 1990s. That's a 100% true story. There was another women's college that was affiliated. It's very bad. Yeah. Radcliffe? Radcliffe, yes. Radcliffe, there's some really like stupid um, like newspaper articles that uh, ran out of the student newspaper about in the 70s. There being a fight to let um, Radcliffe students literally use any of the libraries. <laughs> Uh, because men were like oh no it's the 1970s a woman in my library Absolutely will not. mean that i will <laughs> dick flying out everywhere i don't know um but um, <laughs> anyway that's such an aside harvard is really bad yes. um, yeah. it's true yeah 
and then so okay so back to marston i guess and his controversial harvard education so he graduated with like a degree in like psychology or whatever and he was also a lawyer he had a lot of career ups and downs he invented the lie detector did it work probably not did he think it works yes (laughs) was he a little bit targeting only women in his testing so he like yeah Yeah. And then he also, he became a teacher, as one does when he sort of failed at uh, making a lie detector and being a lawyer and uh, being a screenwriter and being a lot of other things. (laughs) Uh, He was a teacher and then he met Olive Byrne. And Olive Byrne is freaking amazing. Elizabeth meets Olive and they're like, hey, 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 we become three. And they did. (laughs) <laughs> it just be like that sometimes um and all of us like the niece of margaret sanger right yes that's like crazy so it was sort of like marston was a big fan of margaret sanger beforehand and then they met and, and then they were sort of just like yeah. and then like after a few conversations they find out that she's related to margaret sanger and Marston basically fangirled. He was just like, I love you. Marry me currently. And Margaret Sanger is was the founder of the birth control movement and a huge mm-hmm. figure in the early feminist movement. She's also super controversial uh, yes. in a eugenics uh, frame yep. of mind. As most scientists uh, <laughs> were at the time, the white scientists. Specifically... <laughs> Not to not to toot the horn too much, but um, Harvard had a special yep. evil role in the foundation of eugenics, not just in the U.S., not just in higher education, but as a truly global force for evil mm. in early genetic sciences. Let us know. Harvard was yeah. a pioneer. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Marston is awesome, sort of, a little bit. He created Wonder Woman, and he combined a lot of the personality traits of Olive and Elizabeth, and because they were both very strong female characters in his life. Uh, and then he also had a very strong mother role. He had, had some mom issues a little Don't bit. They always. Yep. Yeah. Sounds right. Tracks. But And he also had a lot of like psychological views on the world, and all of those are right in the original Wonder Woman comics. So just like looking at the weapons of Wonder Woman, so clearly there's no guns in Wonder Woman does not use a gun. This is a a big thing that Marston advocated for. He did not want any guns, but also it was just sort of seen as a bad move in comics at that time. Batman also doesn't have a gun. Bruce Wayne's parents got killed by a gun and he never used it again. Then you have the Lasso of Truth, That's really, uh, Marston created the first lie detector. He put his invention in his new invention. (laughs) There you go. And in this one, it worked. (laughs) (laughs) There's even an issue in the early run with, I think it's the first issue with Cheetah, Kristen Wiig's character, where basically he recreates a trial that he lost because uh, his lie detector, (laughs) his lie detector evidence was deemed inadmissible in court. They were like, we don't believe it. And so he wrote a comic where Wonder Woman used her lasso of truth. And it was deemed okay by the court. I mean, sure. (laughs) I would do the same thing. That's so funny. This is so clarifying. I've always wondered why she has the lasso of truth. It's a weird power. It's such a weird power, Mm -hmm. but... It's a weird power. He just had a little obsession with truth. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's also the invisible plane, but that's just plain cool because 
planes yep. in the 40s. Yes, no, excellent pun. Great job, Quinn. <laughs> Love it. Then there's the Amazonian strength and speed, and that's sort of like one of the only ones that sort of carry over um, to the actual myths, but not all the way because Marston's strength comes from the girl power and love that goes on at Themyscira Island. There's a bullet point uh, here that says all Amazons are super strong because of girl power and stuff. And I really <laughs> thought that Carter wrote that. But I was quick. And then there it are the true. bulletproof ba- bracelets. And I feel like in the more current renditions of Wonder Woman, those are sort of a Wonder Woman only tool and only she knows mm-hmm. how to do that but in the original marston ones it's basically just like if you learn real hard you're gonna learn how to do that and then there's like wonder woman's weaknesses uh a lot of these carry over <laughs> throughout wonder woman's lifetime so i put uh her main weakness is steve trevor because it is yes chris pines <laughs> dreamy dreamy eyes she'll die for him that is a weakness just like Percy will die for Annabeth. It is a weakness. Oh, <laughs> bring it back. <laughs> but so so in this original one, basically if Wonder Woman is tied up by a woman, she lo- loses all of her powers. And then another weakness, just my personal, I see this as a weakness, her breastplate never comes into play in the comics or anything. But reality... She's gonna die if she goes in battle dressed the way she does. As soon as she gets punched in the boob, that breastplate goes out. You know how a grenade is made and Actually, it has I don't know how a grenade is in made, it? but please tell me. <laughs> okay, so you know, you picture a grenade. You see how it's bumpy? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's so when it blows up, each one of those bumps becomes a mini bullet. Sure, sure. Wonder uh-huh. Woman's breastplates. Those are rivets. As soon as something <laughs> punches her, those are popping out. This is so well thought and out, Quinn. Popping in just... a little bit too much. And she's gonna die. This is such precise <laughs> analysis of her outfit. I am so impressed. <laughs> and then Wonder Woman's greatest weakness. Male writers. Literally, period. Give a mm-hmm. moment. Just mm-hmm. yell at male writers. I'm sorry, there's a note here in the outline that says that she would spend issues of the comics spying on people at the mall. Yes! <laughs> died, different male writers came into charge of Wonder Woman and they started taking powers away. The issues started to become Steve rescuing her, them going out on a wonderful date, her getting kidnapped a lot and then getting rescued or whatever, but slowly just all of her powers disappear until one day she's just walking around the mall and being a fashionista. And sometimes spying on people. Wow. But then, miraculously, Gloria Steinem came out of the blue and made her president. <laughs> yes. If mm-hmm. I were a superhero, mm-hmm. I would 100% just spy on people. <laughs> <laughs> yes! I'm so mad. Yes, no, exactly. That's the whole point. Like, is it infuriating that they took her powers away? Yes. Would I also, given the chance, spend my time sitting at the wall spying on people? Literally, yes. yes. Do I feel represented by that? What yes. The evil thing is, I would absolutely read that comic and find it fucking hilarious. So I'm part of the problem. No, you know? recognizing oh, it is the first step. Her fashion is awesome. I would love her dresses. And that's on like, the duality <laughs> of being a woman. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'd like to, like, take a quick moment here to pause and, like, draw us back to the Amazons as they were in Greek myth. Um, And something, again, you know, non-classics 
study person, layman person, <laughs> just like something that fascinates me about this whole subject is yes. how the demigods of myth um, evolved into like the superheroes of modern American folklore, you know, superheroes that were like in America, you know, kind of Marvel created to be military propaganda, which we've mentioned before on the show. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to track culturally like the transition from demigod heroes um, and what they meant to Greek culture um, to like our superheroes and like how the demigods back then represented like, I don't know, like the ideal man. They were like the founders of the cities um, and they killed Amazons. But now here we have this American superhero who is herself an Amazon yeah. and was created yep. by a man and all and is flawed, oh, but yeah. is still iconic. To, to me, like the, the takeaway from this is something about the American like... How do I put this gently? The, <laughs> Just like, spit it out. <laughs> liberal myth of like imperial center and hegemony and like the acceptance of foreign bodies who have been displaced yes. by US expansion as like a form, as like the highest form of of good. Yes, like, the okay. myth of American multiculturalism. The myth of American multiculturalism, the myth of America as the melting pot that accepts mm -hmm. all people without yep. asking the question, why does it have to accept the people? What did it do mm -hmm. to displace the people? Yes. Like, the foundational mythology we yes. crafted for ourselves of about like, Ellis Island and the European myth of immigration. Island, the myth of America like benevolently taking in refugees as though America did not like bomb the shit out of the countries that um or did not refugees explicitly bar refugees yes <laughs> and as though it doesn't also bar other refugees and like screen them on the basis of things like sexual orientation it's just yeah but like i, I don't know it feels like that that idea where they're like oh like this person who is from this like opposing country like her ultimate form of goodness is subsuming herself into america mm -hmm. into this project mm -hmm. and in. like mm -hmm. becoming its strongest defender and proponent is like wow, yeah. the american version of where the greeks would just like look at this foreigner and be mm -hmm. like no that is to be that is to be externalized completely and defeated yeah. right yes i mean like and yes it is a it is a cynical i guess you could say like lens to think about wonder woman in that way mm -hmm. you know if you're inspired by her like please be inspired by her but it definitely does i think perpetuate something about western civilization like we've been talking about it's just in a different way and like it's interesting because wonder woman made her comeback in the 1970s like we said thanks to gloria steinem and that's sort of when we saw like this myth of american yes. multiculturalism on the rise in hollywood through america's own soft culture of movies and stuff about like different ethnic kinds of americans like italian americans and irish americans like coming yep. to america or like representing this kind of multi-identity American who is like unique enough to feel pride but not unique enough to advocate for group rights right 1972 is of course like height of Vietnam War before um we get you, you know like yes like yeah. th this is the first time we have like the refugee as like a strong protected category in U.S. like discourses where like con Congress like explicitly seeks out and approves them as a like way to conduct foreign policy and to like further anti-communism as like a message anyway yeah no we're talking about some like long-winded <laughs> academic like theory stuff that oh, we're yeah. not qualified to talk about so we'll link some jstor articles yes we're gonna we're, we'll link the jstor maybe that's a good point to pivot and be like wonder woman was recently made into movies that's how let's talk about it i think it's number time. one note from the movies <laughs> these people are so attractive <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so glad you Chris said that. Pine I thought you weren't going to say it. Gadot, like, even though she's an Israeli soldier, she's so good looking. She's unbelievably good looking. I don't think I've ever no. seen a more beautiful woman. She's just gorgeous. On the, the face of this I earth. I think for me, it's mostly like the hair is so good. 
I remember when they first like <laughs> cast her, and I was just like, "Well, who's who's mm-hmm. going to be Wonder Woman?" And then I saw her, I'm like, "Oh, she'll be Wonder Woman." Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> also, Chris Pine, yep. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Also, Chris Pine. No also, Chris Pine there. is very good looking. Um, but I guess for more of like the plot and the cultural relevance. Wait, guess, like, are we going to separate first is... movie, second movie, or are we just talking about? Yes, second? we're going to separate them briefly, but like at a high level, like did we all like them? What do we feel like the movie said? I guess I can start us off. I I found the first movie pretty good, like um slightly better than like the normal churn of like very like aggressively mediocre blockbusters. And then the second movie I found like painful, like so, so difficult to sit through. Um, and well, like on top of that, I, I don't feel like the messaging to me was that coherent. Like I I did not, I was not of the camp with like a lot of other people in 2017 being like, wow, like this movie is thoughtful. It said a lot of things. It like made messages about war and about like the state of empire and like the way that it talked about Ares uh, made sense. Like, I, I no, <laughs> no. I was not bored for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I obviously agree with all of that. Everything you said, Carter, <laughs> I actually recently rewatched the first one at a drive-in with my sister in LA this summer, which was just like such a fun experience. And I enjoyed the first movie all the times I've seen it for like the Greek mythology, no matter how awkward the Aries is with Ramus Lupin. Um, In general, I am like very opposed to DC movies. I simply think they're bad. Yeah. (laughs) And this was the first DC movie I actually enjoyed. So like props to that, I guess. But the second movie I did find extremely difficult beyond like the first 10 minutes that they were in the mascara, which I did enjoy. And that scene did not actually end up playing into the rest of the movie. The (laughs) themes that they thought they were advancing in the scene did not actually get payoff. No, I'm glad you said that because I was so confused at the end of the movie. I was like, was this what we were setting up in the framing device? Because it does not feel the same. Not to mention just like the truly xenophobic portrayals of like the four countries that they visited them. Yeah, I I don't know. So, okay, the first Wonder Woman movie came out the same year I was writing my thesis on the origins of Wonder Woman. Oh. This is why I know things. And (laughs) I had to answer questions about it during during my like presentation on my thesis so after it my my the one question that my professor asked me at the end of everything i was just like yeah this is feminism (laughs) how it has impacted wonder woman here's blah 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 and he's just like so uh how do you like the depiction of the germans in the wonder woman movie and i was just like what are you talking about Terrible. After that. <laughs> uh, that said, uh, when I first saw the first Wonder Woman movie, I absolutely loved it. It was the first like female-led superhero movie, and it was relatively good. It was so exciting. It was thrilling. And then I rewatched it, and then I was like, "Oh, this has issues." Um, <laughs> yeah. I think the relatively good point is is very important. Yeah. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I think I think it was really ex- it's exciting for what it is, but yeah. then it it doesn't make it perfect. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> no, I totally understand yeah. that feeling. Like this summer during the pandemic, I was um, up in Michigan and I was walking around <clears throat> the movie theater. It wasn't open, but I walked past it and it had all the posters up for the sh- movies that would have been playing, and it was just three huge posters for Mulan, Wonder Woman, and black widow and i like got a little bit emotional like yeah i was just kind of standing there staring at it like wow 
these movies aren't playing right now, which is sad, but, like, these are three female-led, like, superhero action movies, all with their own problems, but still, like, that means something. It really, it made me feel really good inside. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, you know, I think we hit all the bullet points we were interested in talking about. (laughs) Um, Quinn, I gotta say, if you want to send us your thesis, we can link it in our show notes. But yeah, thank you so, so much for coming and sharing your extreme breadth and depth of knowledge on the Amazons <laughs> and on Wonder Woman. Thank you listeners yes. for joining us for these special episodes. It means a lot that you'd desire to listen to us talk about stuff that is only slightly Percy Jackson related. <laughs> Next up is our Son of Neptune wrap up episode. And then we'll be zooming into Mark of Athena. Thank God. <laughs> so we'll see you guys then. Bye. <laughs>